Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for another one of our Sunday Shoot the Shit shows is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Happy, happy to be here. We're going to kind of figure out what we're going to talk about as we work through this here, but this is going to be a little more free-flowing, um, just a chance to to check in on the things that have been happening this week. Two of the headline things that I saw that we'll definitely talk about today. Uh, one, we are recording on Sunday, and on Saturday, President Trump formally nominated Amy Coney Barrett to be his nominee on the Supreme Court to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that uh, nomination has already sort of sparked some political fallout, both her nomination and the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg that we talked about last time. Um, So we're going to talk about, you know, what the political implications are, and whether or not this fight over a Supreme Court nomination in October of an election year, if that's going to be more galvanizing to one side or the other. Uh, Then if you paid any attention to Twitter this week, It was officially Matt Lieberman get out of the Senate race week. And as a reminder to listeners, the importance of Matt Lieberman exiting that race, the reason that his critics were calling for him to exit is that it is possible that if Matt Lieberman maintains a significant level of support, he could force Reverend Raphael Warnock, who is the uh, chosen candidate by Democratic power brokers in the state, he could keep Reverend Warnock out of a runoff. Um, And if that happens, then we would have a runoff in January between Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler. So the message came down on high that uh, from on high that Lieberman needs to get out. Um, Some other things we may touch on, you know, we're starting to get some numbers around early voting. I mean, the Secretary of State has made some interesting moves as it relates to helping people track their ballots. Um, And then beyond that, who knows? We're kind of just here to shoot the shit. So so let's dive right into it. Luke, the this race... The stakes weren't high enough, Kyle. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, that, I mean, that, that's why I think your, your hesitation there. It was just like, does it matter? Because I, I don't know if any, anything matters. Because um, so much, I feel like, of, of this campaign has been incredibly stable, right? Like, for Trump's presidency... He's been like between 42% to 46% approval, like from day one. Like he has not moved out that range. I, I'm almost certain that if you studied the range of presidential approval, that is the narrowest one ever. And, you know, not just the fact that it's like negative, but like just the range is so small in the sense that like he can't lose that 42% that love him, but he can't get above, you know, 46% or so. So there's like a, you know, four. maybe that will consider Trump and and think about him. And then the rest of the, you know, the rest of that number is a bunch of people who really don't like him. And then a bunch of people who like, don't follow things closely enough to have an opinion, I think. Um, And the thing that I think is really striking about, you know, the, the Ginsburg thing uh, and, you know, as, as you mentioned, we're going to be talking, we've talked about that some, we're going to talk about it more with, uh, some friends hopefully soon. Um, so I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but I, I want to focus in, especially on the, how this has affected the race. And I'm sure, you know, people who would be listening to a, pol- uh, you know, politics podcast about Georgia specifically have probably heard about Act Blue, the, uh, democratic donation platform raising, roughly $300 million since Ginberg passed away. And I, I will say pretty much nothing has made me feel like this race has moved since January. Like I felt like Democrats had a good chance of, of winning uh, since then. And since Joe Biden became the nominee that has only been assured um, by his consistent, strong polling numbers still, you know, still in the range of something bad could happen and he could lose, but you know, looking strong. Um, and and basically, no matter what Trump did, no matter what Biden did, nothing moved to those numbers, right? Like Joe Biden is at seven percent today. He'll be at seven percent tomorrow. He was at seven percent six months ago. He'll be, you know, he'll be at seven percent on election day. Is kind of how I feel. And like almost nothing has moved it. Whereas this Ginsburg thing, I think it has moved it in, in two ways. One, I think for the people who 
we're looking for some universal divine sign to come down and say it's not that important to vote for Joe Biden everything will be fine like no like there there is no doubt there's no doubt that like you have to vote for Joe Biden that you cannot vote for the Green Party nominee who we don't even know who it is this time I saw one post about him the other day I was like oh I think weird... his name is Joe Jorgensen no no that is the libertarian I do know oh, that um that's the libertarian yes that's right um, shows that's how much li- I know exactly and so it's like no one knows who it is and and joe jorgensen is actually a a woman so like that that really proves we like the fact that like we are unclear on who these third party nominees is is great and that's a whole other story that we should get into sometime but like probably not to be honest yeah that's probably true actually (laughs) i don't think they Um, have a role this time (laughs) they really don't and thank god uh for that Um, no and i think that is um yeah, a long a long way of coming around to say that the stakes have been made very clear. Not only, and this is the part that I, I have been the most surprised by, which is it's not just that people understand like, oh, we really do have to elect Joe Biden, and I need to swallow this if I'm not excited about it. The really magical thing that happened um, with, with this, and I, you know, I hate that it took the dying of a living legend for for this to happen it's just like people really woke up to it's like oh like we should also elect democrats everywhere (laughs) and a lot of that money i think this is the thing that like i would really highlight to people is a lot of that money went to people you have never heard about and i won't be able to tell you about because just to give you like one example, and this is about to be in a disclosure, so this is no like secret, um, is that like my the main candidate I'm working for is Jonathan Wallace, and we are a state house campaign, a scrappy state house campaign trying to take on a significantly better funded uh, Republican incumbent, and like we got fifteen thousand dollars over a week just because some random person at Swing Left thought our race needed more money. <laughs> And we were just part of an act blue form that like just gave money to random candidates that they, you know, have done research on and said, Hey, these people need money and we got it. And like, that is a huge thing for us. Uh, we need more money. So if you'd like to give us more money, please give, give money to Jonathan Wallace. Uh, Cause our budget is incredibly tight and there's a lot of things we want to do to communicate our message. And we, you know, we just like, weren't going to be able to do it. And now with this outpouring that's not just going to Joe Biden or not going to, you know, Amy McGrath. And it's like going to MJ Hedgar, who is someone who has gotten far less attention than Beto O'Rourke did in Texas, but has just as good, if not a better chance of actually taking the seat than Beto did. Um, and I like even like the, the, the form that we were on had the Senate candidate from Alaska, who I actually cannot tell you the name of right now. And I think that is actually the point, though, is the point is there's a bunch of candidates who are incredibly important because just, you know, to to hype not only my candidate, but Georgia Democrats running for the state house in general. I mean, this Supreme Court battle, a lot of it is going to end up having federal consequences. But the things I think people are the most concerned about are actually the state level consequences. Well, and, before you yeah. before you get into those, I want to I want to take a step back for a minute here because okay, I think yeah, we yeah. haven't quite level set with everybody here. Probably not. You know, the thing if you looked at the election that has been happening so far this year, Luke, you talked a lot about how a lot of this stuff has been baked in the cake, you know, not a lot has changed. We are dealing with one overarching reality, which is the COVID-19 pandemic that has upended people's lives. And it you know, continues in a way that I think no other sort of political issue has so much impacted the day-to-day decisions people have to make. Co- the COVID-19 pandemic has done that. It has completely shifted the way in which we live our lives. And so I think one thing that contributes to the stability of the presidential race is people's opinions about who is at fault for this pandemic. Those are very set. They're very stable. People have gone to their corners and not much has changed because the reality of the pandemic hasn't changed all that much. If you told me, throw in the mix, the 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 classic traditional October surprise and that that surprise is a vacancy on the Supreme Court that would allow Republicans to take a commanding 6-3 majority, conservative majority on the court, the, I think, operating assumption would be that's a huge win for the president. That's a huge win for Republicans. 
because that is something that would galvanize them to get to the polls because the the policy stakes on things that they really care about is really high when you have that opportunity. So I think the thing that you're getting at here, the thing that you've observed in the the finance data from your own campaign, the financing efforts from campaigns like yours is that democratic voters who are highly engaged have responded in this moment of um, really treacherous consequences for, for liberals and progressives by giving a lot of money to a lot of candidates up and down the ballot. And so it raises this question of whether or not the operating assumption that I started with, that this would be a galvanizing, important event for conservatives, and that it would, to some extent, bail them out, given how you know, how much President Trump has shouldered the blame of the pandemic, that assumption may not be correct. And yeah, I, I think I, I would actually go so far to observing. say, yeah, it's so far I think that assumption is very wrong, right? Like I have not seen some outpouring for support for David Perdue or Kelly Loeffler based off this or any Republican candidate, to be clear. I, I think part of the reason is, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons, honestly. Um, the first one I would say is I think the I, it really reminds me of Jason Kander's race in Missouri. Um, and I know that sounds like a really weird connection to make for this, but just hear me out for a second. Like, Kander did significantly better than Clinton did in 2016 when he was running. And I think he articulated the reason why that was so well, which is like he ran his campaign pretty clear, pretty consistently, and in a way where a lot of his campaign was based off of just the idea that like, hey, you and I will not agree on everything, but you can trust me that I'm not going to BS you. And a lot of people really liked that in Missouri, and I think people in general like that out of politicians when people feel like they are genuine and feel like they're not going to get, you know, sideline, you know, just like deal with a hacky politician, right? Like the drain the swamp stuff. Like there's a real energy behind that. And now I look at uh, Lindsey Graham and Jamie Harrison in a race that like has no business being close at all based on how well-known and long-term Lindsey Graham has been a senator. And I think it's because of the exact opposite thing as Jason Kander, which is that Lindsey Graham basically, like the only thing he could have done more to say that like if a justice died before the election like right before an election i would not vote for a new justice would have been to tattoo it to his forehead like that's the only thing he could have done more because there's literally tape of lindsey graham saying hold this tape i want you to use my words against me if there's a republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term you can say lindsey graham said let's let the next president who it whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. We're setting a precedent here today, Republicans are, that in the last year, at least of a lame duck eight-year term, I would say it's going to be a four-year term, that you're not going to fill a vacancy of the Supreme Court based on what we're doing here today. That's going to be the new rule. <laughs> if a Supreme Court <laughs> justice retires or dies in an election year, I would not confirm a new one until after the election. He literally said, hold the tape. And now he's like, no, nah, I'm actually going to confirm one anyway. I think that like blatant hypocrisy has like turned off a lot of people and made, frankly, like the right feel less energized about this than they did in 16. Because in 16, they felt like they were really like, fighting for something on the side of like, oh, we're being moral and like letting voters decide, isn't this great? And isn't this exciting? Um, whereas this time it's like, no, nah, we're just going to do a blatant power grab and be very transparent about it. And basically, you know, we'll, we'll be on talking points 90% of the time, but 10% of the time we're just going to say, yeah, we're just doing it because we can. And well, we're think... worried about what the <laughs> Democrats are going to do. And so I think the... Just very quickly, you know, I think I think what we're seeing now is the response to that blatant hypocrisy really being played out on the ground level uh, in a deeper way than it even helped the Republicans in 16, because I think it did help them. This particular instance where you can look 
back at statements from senators like Lindsey Graham and David I mean, Perdue. All of them. Like I'm just going to say <laughs> all, all of the all Republicans. Of but I mean this this particular instance where you can point out the fact that they are being blatantly dishonest about the position that they held in 2016 sort of feeds into what has been a democratic message kind of in the background. I mean, this is not the primary message in anybody's campaigns, but that Donald Trump lies to you. And not only does Donald Trump lie to you, but so does Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell and David Perdue and all of them that held this supposed standard in 2016, they flip-flopped on it. And it, it's just another instance where Democratic campaigns can point the, to their Republican opponents and say, here's another instance of them lying to you, just like Donald Trump does every day, just like he did about the pandemic. It's one of those things where like, you have this sort of pre-existing idea among people who are swing voters who you know, believe that Donald Trump is dishonest and this just feeds into that. And so that's sort of like, those are the voters that if Trump is going to be successful, he needs to swing them back into his camp. And those are the voters that somebody like David Perdue is going to have to count on to maintain a narrow statewide lead. On the on the flip side of the coin, the, the voters who are happy with the power grab, who are excited about this opportunity to put a conservative justice on the court to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they're already in the Republican camp. They were already going to vote anyways. So it's it does add to the enthusiasm for them, I think, but that has just become such a small number of the electorate that Republicans need to win that like amping up the enthusiasm for them just doesn't get you a lot. And you have this downside of looking hypocritical and dishonest to the people who you need to bring to your side. Yeah, no, I think that's especially true because I think Trump was in this really weird position in 2016. And I, I you know, I look forward to 20 years from now when uh, there's been enough time and distance for someone to do a historical look at this because I really feel like Trump, the voters Trump was having a really hard time with before, like in that period between him getting the nomination or like being very clear that he was going to win the nomination to his convention was evangelical voters and social conservatives and in those folks the let's call them the moral majority or the people who see themselves as the moral majority like that that's who he was having a lot of trouble with from my you know very uh public re- recollection of you know probably like us talking on the show about it and just like thinking back um like that that was where he was having a lot of problems and i feel like between him picking mike pence and even despite the uh opinions on lbgt issues that gorsuch have signed on to and just cavanaughing all the other justices and just everything trump has done as president like those people just like they have made peace with the fact that donald trump is a, a terrible human being in person because he gets them stuff they want and they are more than happy to make this Faustian bargain. And I think they're more bought into the project than they were in the middle of 2016. And so, yeah, like, I just don't see who who that voter is who's like, man, Donald Trump has done a really crappy job with the coronavirus and I'm scared, you know, that I'm going to lose my health care or I'm scared to, like, go out to eat or see my kids or see my parents but, oh, a Supreme Court justice, ah, shit, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll book up with four more years of this, because, man, the Supreme Court, that is my thing. That's the most important thing to me. Like, I don't know who those people are. Um, well, the other thing is, I think we have observed in recent years that people become more politically activated when there are things on the line that they could lose. And so in 2016... The death of Antonin Scalia and the potential that Hillary Clinton would replace him on the court was a opportunity for conservatives to lose power. And electing Donald Trump was a way to ensure that conservatives did not lose something. At this point, it would be a huge missed opportunity for conservatives if they could not secure a nominee to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But they're not losing they didn't lose a conservative justice when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. For liberals, they lost a, a liberal progressive icon and have a lot to lose 
um, if that person well, the country has a lot to lose. <laughs> yeah, the country has um, a lot yes. to lose, but so do progressives. And we've observed this with the Affordable Care Act that it was largely unpopular and Democrats weren't excited to campaign on it in 2014 and even to some extent in 2016. And then the prospect of Republicans taking it away and attempting to in 2017. And this is going to reemerge as a part of the Supreme Court discussion, the possibility that it gets taken away by a Supreme Court ruling, I think activates liberals who are afraid to lose those things. Yeah, and I, I think that is a very good way to frame it. And just to to come back to this, you know, energy thing that I'm talking about because it's it's very real. Is just the this is not a bunch of people like writing my random state house campaign hundred dollar checks. Like this is people giving to Act Blue forms that have like fifteen different candidates on them, and effectively we would get you know a couple dollars here and there from it. So like in, I just looked it up like the week that, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Like we got 100 1,440 contributions with the average contribution being $18 and 23 cents. Um, so like that, that is the kind of energy I'm talking about that's happening, which is just very organic. Like we did nothing to make it happen. It's just the world around us is making it happen. So um, question for you, Luke, how do campaigns effectively capitalize on that energy? I mean, I don't think that a state house candidate in Georgia is going to run their race primarily as a referendum on Trump's selection of who will be the justice to replace RBG on the Supreme Court. But there's obviously ways that you could sort of lean into that event being a galvanizing force for the people who would potentially vote for your campaign. So what kinds of things should campaigns be thinking about, about how to lean into that energy, but to sort of apply it to the context that they're in? Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is true of every campaign at every time. So this is going to be a somewhat more generic answer. Probably it might feel like, but I, I just think it's true is like, I think a campaign's job is to always try to level people up. And this is something I'm stealing from my current candidate because it's a great thought. But like he, he, like a big emphasis for Jonathan in our campaign has been leveling people up. So if someone was like comfortable, you know, writing postcards that, you know, maybe we'll get them to the place where they're comfortable to call people on the phone and get their friends to volunteer to do postcards with them and stuff like that, rather than just like being someone who, was doing one thing, you know, getting them to the next level, right? And so what's happening to us and what's I'm sure happening to other campaigns around the country right now is that there's a lot of people who are engaging with them for the first time and being able to capture those people's imagination. You know, it, it, the most important thing for any campaign is not getting someone to donate once or volunteer once, it's getting them to come back and do it again and again and again. And I think what's happening now is that a lot of people are, including myself, I won't lie, are like looking for meaning and purpose and a way to like do something that matters in this moment of real trouble and treachery. And I, I feel like uh, campaigns are a great opportunity for that. And so having the people, you know, around your camp campaign that are ready to bring those folks in and empower them to be part of the process, I think is a really, really critical thing. The other thing I think, and I don't, I don't know if y'all are doing this directly or explicitly. I think this is an opportunity to remind people of what the policy stakes are in the races that they're in. So, you know, so I don't know if, you know, your candidate, Jonathan Wallace, he's running in a state house seat that obviously isn't directly impacted by who's on the U.S. Supreme Court. But I think it's important to remind voters that if, and we're not going to get super deep into this right now, but one potential outcome of an Amy Coney Barrett uh, ascension to the Supreme Court is that Roe v. Wade is overturned and the debate about the legality of abortion is returned to the states. Um, if you've been listening to us for a while, you would remember that the state legislative session in 2019 was largely defined by Governor Kemp's effort to push through a ban on abortion at six weeks. And that ban, you know, didn't go into effect because it was held up in court, but a 6-3 conservative majority court maybe changes the potential outcome for that law, or at minimum emboldens 
Governor Kemp in a Republican majority to pursue laws that restrict abortion that would get favorable consideration in a Supreme Court with Amy Coney Barrett on it. So like, you know, and in in your race in particular, that whoever wins that state house seat is one vote likely for or against whatever the conservative reaction at the state level is to a 6-3 conservative U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I mean, that's absolutely right. And just, I think people forget how votes work and how uh, legislatures work sometimes because I think we're used to the federal model where like most of the time what you see is that like Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi goes on TV and they say, my cha- you know, my chamber is going to pass X, you know, expect us to pass X. And like 99.9% of the time that is actually what happens where the state house like that is not how it works. I mean, there's a lot of times where they will go into their conference meetings and they will have impassioned speeches and they will tell each other, like, this is what we're going to do. And we expect you to, like, toe the party line. And then some farmer from the middle of nowhere in Georgia will be like, "Uh, I don't want to do that at all. And so they just vote against it. And, like, they can't prepare for that. And they have, like, no nothing they can do (laughs) to this person if that happens. And so, like, on the the heartbeat bill, like, that was only two two votes and like had Jonathan been there and said Marcus Wiegauer like that bill very well might not have passed because one of the other two votes was one Democrat who for God knows why voted for it um was that Vernon Jones no it wasn't Vernon Jones actually it it was that it was a I I can't remember who it is it was I do remember he was like a pastor so I'm, I'm guessing there might have been a religious reason there um but you know either way like it very well might not have passed because them he he would have been truly the decisive vote there rather than just like a a add-on vote and maybe he wouldn't have done it then um and so like it really does matter it when when legislature is so tight even if we don't take the majority back this year which we very well could even if we don't just having one or two more state reps in georgia on the d side would really make it harder for republicans to pass some of these things not to mention they they have been out of the range of being able to pass constitutional amendments uh, with just Republicans for a while, but if you push that further and further, it becomes significantly harder for them. Well, and, and the other and so, thing is that nobody no if if Democrats take fourteen seats and not sixteen, and so Republicans control the state house by two, we're in a a much closer to fifty fifty state now than we were fifteen years ago. I don't know how many of the competitive seat state house Republicans want to be the last vote to have upheld a total complete ban on abortion that gets approved by a six, three Supreme court majority. Like, you know, that's the other, I mean, the important thing uh, in terms of democratic power in the state house is to take the chamber. Uh, but I don't, I don't think there are a lot of Republicans who want to be the last and decisive vote on a total abortion ban and then, and then have to go run on that in a competitive district. No, that's very true. And, and the thing I wanted to point out, and I was, I was getting to before you very properly uh, reined me in, uh, was the, like, it's not just abortion. Like, there's a ton of issues that a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court could rule on that state legislators could shut down and prevent from happening uh, if they wanted to, because a lot, I mean, a lot of it is going to be, you know, here are some policies that previously were not allowed. If a state wants to do it, we're freeing you to do it. And it will be up to the state legislature whether they do that thing or not. And the way that you prevent them from doing it is you elect more Democrats uh, who have no interest in pursuing regressive or, you know, incredibly discriminatory uh, conservative policies that a new Supreme Court might sign off on, and so that that is that is how I've been framing it, and I've just been hardened to see that other people are are taking that same lesson in and are just realizing the stakes of this situation. So there's a lot of enthusiasm among Democrats to donate to Democratic campaigns at this moment. There's also a lot of enthusiasm among Democrats to tell Matt Lieberman to get the fuck out. <laughs> So let's so let's transition to that, because it was officially Matt Lieberman get out of the Senate race uh, week this week. 
this was all over over Georgia Democratic politics Twitter, but it was not just Twitter. Stacey Abrams uh, leaned in telling Matt Lieberman that this was not his moment. And uh, former President Obama formally endorsed Reverend Warnock in that seat, which I don't know, the timing of that is is really difficult to ignore, particularly falling in this week. Uh, Democrats really wanted Lieberman out. Yeah, I mean, not even, not only only Democrats, like, I even read an article in Slate, which, you know, is a national publication, uh, that the, the title of it was, and I quote, the jerk who gave me a C plus in English could cost the Democrats the Senate. <laughs> Uh, end quote and and like that is that is the tone and the feeling and the emotion behind uh most of these calls to get lieberman out and so i i, I want to just like put all of my cards firmly on the table and make it very clear what's about to happen everyone for the next 15 minutes i am going to tell you why matt lieberman needs to get out of the senate race very very quickly and uh why i i just wish he had already done it before ballots went out um, well, but let's do before, this. Let's, what I was going to say, I, I was going to throw him, I was going to throw him a bone for like two minutes and say okay. why he shouldn't. <laughs> and then just a dump truck of reasons why he should. Um, is that work for you, Kyle? Yeah. Let's yeah, do Okay. That. So, all right. So the, the, let, let, let's do, let's do the, the reasons why he, he shouldn't. Uh, the first one I'll is. I'll see if I can think of any. Yeah. So I have a couple that like are, are worth discussing, um, briefly. One, he got in first. He, and he's been running for a long time. There was actually a long time where he was the only Democrat in, uh, and he was raising a good amount of money, and he was actually polling okay. Like, he was polling pretty well, and also for Lieberman, because again, I, I want to be very clear, there's going to be about 15 minutes of me saying why he should get out. <laughs> so I'm, I'm giving him every little thing I can before that 15 minutes starts. Um, like, he was polling ahead of Warnock, and like this was after Abrams endorsed Warnock, and basically every Democrat in the party that matters um, endorsed Warnock, and... Rornock like started raising money and doing COVID appropriate campaigning and like that's not a lot of stuff. And there was a brief period, and I don't we didn't really talk about it as much as I'd like to on the show previously, but like there was a real period there of I would say at least a month and a half, I'd be like, what the hell is Warnock doing? Like, I see his stuff everywhere. I like him a lot and I feel like he's a great and dynamic speaker and that he has a lot going for him. But Lieberman was just out polling him for like a really good while, like about two months, I would say. And that has and, and that has ceased to be the case. Welcome to the 15 minutes of why Lieberman should get out. Um, there's not much going for him at all. Like, yes. Oh, he's wait, been, are you are you about to? Yes, let's rail into him. Do you do you have reasons for for why you should say? Well, let's let's continue to be very generous to Matt Lieberman okay, here okay. for for just another minute or so. I don't know that I have any good reasons for why he should stay in at this point. I mean, I think mine do sort of call back to yours that like there was an opportunity there where Matt Lieberman was competitive, seemed to be in this race, and and at at that point, I think could have gone public with sort of a really direct uh, list of reasons of why he is the better candidate, why he would be the better Democrat to be the one to make it into the runoff. I think the way that the campaign has shifted, the way that he was not able to capitalize on that early money, early polling, I think is it is one of the reasons why he shouldn't stay in. He didn't, you know, he didn't capitalize when he had the chance, but Let's give Matt Lieberman the microphone here. So here's sort of the sum of Matt Lieberman's argument for why he should stay in this race. First, this is all coming from his tweets. We'll share these in show notes. Um, he he pays some respect to Stacey Abrams, but he says that Stacey Abrams uh, weighing in on this race, asking Matt Lieberman to get out, sounds like candidate suppression to Matt Lieberman. Then he says that Reverend Warnock is again using race to divide Georgians ahead of this important election by ta by attacking, again, these are Matt Lieberman's words, by attacking an anti-racism book that Lieberman wrote um, that will help us face the legacy of racism in the South. Then Lieberman goes on to say that he is running for U.S. Senate, that he is running for the U.S. Senate as a fed up citizen of Georgia and for the fed up citizens of Georgia, and that he says what Georgians of all races want is not a black senator or a white senator, but a great senator. 
all caps on great. And he says, and that's what I hope to be. So to sort of distill that, the argument that I got, Matt Lieberman's rationale for staying in this race currently is that Reverend Warnock is being divisive by attacking Lieberman over his ill-advised book and that Matt Lieberman thinks he's going to be a great senator. That's the rationale. Luke, we're like several months into this campaign. This is a question that Matt Lieberman was obviously going to get and that he was going to get even more pressed on this as his poll numbers faded. What do you think of his own rationale? And like, shouldn't they have had a better one? Yeah. So what amazes me about what just occurred between us is that you just said, I'm going to read some things that are reasons why Matt should stay in and why, um, you know, good, you know, we, this was part of supposedly part of the good, the good things for Matt Lieberman. And you just read some of the most damning things that, <laughs> that are out there on why he should not be in this race. And, um, it's his own words because he's really just digging his own hole here because, so to try to recap this very quickly, because I, I don't, there's a lot of other people who've talked about it, and I don't think it's the most important thing here, but it's it's critical, which is that Matt Lieberman Roebuck, that is so full of negative stereotypes about black people, despite like, I, I do actually genuinely believe that he was coming from a good place in his heart, like he was trying to write an anti-racist book, but he just obviously is not... He just doesn't get it. Like, there are times where people are being, like, malfeasant and, like, doing something bad, and there's times where people are being incompetent. And in my mind, this is a, like, textbook incompetence case, and he just doesn't get it. And the way that, like, I will double down on knowing that is his response to the criticism. Because, like, it... it honestly, I would give him Matt Lieberman a lot of points if he had said, you know... I wrote a book about how I was feeling. I was trying to do this. And if I failed, like I should have listened better and I should have done, I should have tried harder to understand what was going on in other people's minds and, and, you know, think that it wasn't enough for me to just write what I was feeling. If I was going to talk about this delicate subject and try to do like a positive thing. Cause again, taking Matt Lieberman at his word, he wrote this book not to make money, not to like do something. It was just like it was a genuine expression of how he was feeling about racial relations. So if that is true, and let's again, let's assume it's true, and you got that reaction to the book once you're running for office, like a genuine person <laughs> who was open and thinking about these things in a deep way, in an appropriate way, would have had the reaction I had. And... Uh, I apologize to everyone, including myself, for what I'm about to say, but I looked at Twitter comments, <laughs> and I very rarely do this, but when I, I do when it's like weird situations like these, and I will say I have very rarely seen such unanimous, like, get out, but like literally, he, and like he went on multiple tweet threads, like what Kyle read from was like a six-part tweet thread or something. And like at a certain point, I just got curious and I opened up every single tweet in that thread and literally every single comment for at least like 20 comments was gig out or a less nice way of saying that. Um, and I have just never seen it so unanimous. So, I mean, yeah, like maybe it doesn't matter and he's not going to get any votes at all in a significant way. But again, this comes back to the like 18 person field or however many it is. I know I actually think it's more than 18. Um, I, I, yeah, like my ballot was ridiculous. We should post a picture of the ballot <laughs> for that race. Like he just needs to get out just to, just to, to help people understand what is a very confusing situation. And the only thing he's accomplishing is like honestly like ruining any goodwill that he may have gotten from his earlier days of campaigning. Well, and I would say reasons that he he could have stayed in. He could have capitalized on the lead that he had, the opportunity that he had early in the cycle. He didn't. So that clearly shows a failure of his campaign. The other thing that he's saying about Warnock is that Warnock is is blessed and endorsed by all of the power brokers and so he's going to owe something to them and he's not going to represent you. It's it's difficult to find any significant issue where Matt Lieberman and and Reverend Warnock differ significantly. And so like unless you're saying that Reverend Warnock is just 
not going to vote in favor of the things that he campaigned on and and Matt Lieberman is like that's not really a real distinction there and i nobody looks at like the sort of you know yes they're they're running on progressive issues they're not running on like bernie sanders type issues i mean to be clear like i, I, I want to be like, really take on the establishment yeah i want to be really clear they are both running very policy light campaigns in a way that I don't love. Because <laughs> uh, I, I will say, to be fair, the Ossoff-Purdue race, they they actually talk about policy a lot more, like both of them do, uh, to to their credit. Um, even if, uh, you know, Senator Purdue is being less than honest about his policy commitments, I, do, I just appreciate that is what that campaign, 80% of it's being fought over policy stuff, which I think is good. Whereas for both Lieberman and Warnock, but also Collins and Leffler, and we've really hit it on Collins and Leffler, a lot of it is just like, appearances social cultural issues allegiance to trump uh, right allegiance to trump or again you know uh wanting to go against trump and you know warnock i i will say at the very least is responding better to the environment and just like hi you know like the thing i've appreciated about warnock's campaign is that he's been very responsive to the issues that are going going on because you know i i want to as i have to do a lot of times this year just like you know point out the fact that i am a white guy and that like the racial tensions that this country have been facing like i don't experience that in the same way that a lot of people are because i'm a white christian male uh who is heterosexual so it's just like i i am very privileged in that sense but like you know i would like the country to not be on fire and i would like the country to have tensions calm down and, you know, us, like, work through these issues and come to a productive place in them. And Warnock has focused a lot of his campaign on, like, hey, I understand these issues. And if you put me in the Senate, I will work on them and I will do a good job and I will care about people. And I can care about these issues and work towards solutions because I lived these issues. 1982, a 12-year-old is accused of stealing and dragged out of store, told he looked suspicious because his hands are in his pockets. I'm Raphael Warnock, and that boy was me. Back then, I didn't understand how much the system works against those without power and money, that the rules were different for some of us. Too often, that's still true today, especially in Washington. I approve this message because it's time for that to change. And like, to me, that is actually very compelling. And even if he's not saying, and here is my 18-point plan for, for how I'm going to fix these issues, just like him having that life experience when, let's be honest, very few people in the U.S. Senate can even come close to saying they've had those experiences, I think that is an incredibly valuable thing by itself. And if this was a primary, I would say, Matt Lieberman, do what you want, stay in, fight this thing, you, you deserve your chance to say i was a principal and that's really compelling and why i should be in the u.s senate but at this point he's just holding back warnock's ability to get into this runoff because while ossoff was able to almost get 50 percent plus one in his district when he ran a couple years ago and he got 50 percent plus one in the democratic primary that was the democratic primary not the general election and like i don't think it's going to be easy for Warnock to beat Loeffler and Collins just because they've had such an advantage of getting attention. Um, and so it's going to take work, even if Lieberman dropped out today and endorsed him. Like, it's not a guarantee that voters would move quick enough to Warnock to get him to where he needs to be to have a guaranteed slot in that runoff. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's just a lot of demonstrated failures of his campaign that he didn't take advantage of the opportunities that are coming to him. He knew this question was coming and he did not have a good answer to the question, which is, is another failure. I mean, I think to just for a second to, to contrast this with Richard Dean Winfield, who, who I talked to, he is running on an agenda that is very different than the one being offered by Reverend Warnock. And, and regardless of what you think of that agenda, it is a, it is a very significant contrast. It's a very different approach that's being taken by him that is a, that offers a genuine choice to voters. And it's hard 
to find in anything that Lieberman is offering as he's being pressed here, the way in which he offers a distinct, unique choice from the one that voters have in Warnock. So you have, if you have the political downsides and no real rationale for why you're a preferred alternative, like, what are you doing? Yeah, because I mean, the, the thing I'll say for Richard Dean Lovenfield, like, I actually know him, because <laughs> he is from Athens. Um, I, I would say, that's still not enough for me in these circumstances of life or death uh, uh, for someone to say in this race. But I will give him credit that he is at least, and I think he would approve of uh, me phrasing it this way, like he is running a very radically different campaign and he is proposing radically different policies than Warnock would even if he was elected. And, you know, his argument is stronger on those terms. He's polling significantly less than uh, even Lieberman is. And every little bit counts in this. And so, I mean, he's going to, I like, I know, I know people who are voting for Ossoff and Biden and, and uh, you know, Winfield. And so, I mean, just, it's a fact that he is pulling votes away from who, you know, the, the strongest Democrat in this race, who I, again, believe is Warnock. And I think that is hurting uh, our candidate. But, you know, I think he is engaged in a different project than than Lieberman is and is a project that he's been working on for a while with you know unfortunately for him uh little success but uh I, I think it is just a little it's a little bit different for sure yeah I mean I think the bottom line is it would be much more advantageous to Democrats if they could have these fights out in a real Democratic primary and then unite around a candidate in a in a normal general election but that's just not the situation that we're in yeah, because I mean, I, I want to be very clear here. I love primaries. Like, if this was a, a normal primary situation, I would say everybody and their uncle and their dog run because I think that is what makes the party stronger. And then, like, having Lieberman and Warnock and Winfield and the other, because there are so many other people uh, running in this race, like, they. Ed Tarver gets lost in all yeah, this. Yeah, Ed Tarver's running. I mean, I got, I get a lot of emails from him uh you know like yeah i mean like i think it's good for that and honestly i wish this is my constant frustration is that some of these folks would have been excellent local candidates like they would have been great congressional candidates they would have been great state house and state senate candidates and you know luckily this year we have actually had enough people so that we're actually contesting the races that matter and the races that we need to take back the state house and put a good dent in the state senate so i'm like really happy to see that but like there are definitely races where like ed tarver would be a really compelling candidate in and could have won and could have done really great things and like i i, I hate the fact that everyone's like i'm gonna be a u.s senator even though i've never been elected dog catcher like like i don't know who those people are and i mean sometimes they're right i guess you know barack well barack obama had been a state senator so i guess he doesn't count but like other people like sure like there's been some great senators that that was their first political gig um but yeah i mean like most people like you don't go from being dog catcher or principal to senator Luke, let's close on voting. We're starting to get a little bit of information about who is voting early and how that compares to uh, 2016. Um, we're also observing as the Secretary of State's office um, continues to to deal with this surge in early voting. Um, and I, I think to to drive partisans crazy, it is not universally good or universally bad. It's a little bit of both. Um, so reactions, tell us a little bit about the news on voting that you saw this week and, and give us your reaction. Yeah, well, I, I the first thing I will say is like Brad Raffensperger is probably the most infuriating politician in Georgia for me. And the reason for that is the just lack of consistency where like, <laughs> I don't know like what he's doing <laughs> because he will just do things that are like legitimately great and good for voguing. Like, and what I was mean, that? I, well, well, a couple things like, because one, one's a previous thing that we've discussed and one's a newer thing. So like the, the previous thing we've discussed is like in this time where absentee, well, like, I mean, let's go the, the earliest thing and then go to, to things in between. Right. So like, in the primary, like, nobody forced him to send an absentee ballot request to every Georgian registered to vote, but he did, and that was great, and it had excellent 
results. And a lot of people who usually don't participate in primaries did because of it. And I think that improves democracy. So I think that's great. And he did that. And like he, I mean, honestly, it was so surprising that he did it that some state legislators tried to prevent him from doing it ever again legally. So like on that, on that front, I think if there's any argument for like how impactful and, and exciting that was, is the fact that people tried to stop him from ever doing it again. Um, so there's that. And then, uh, recently they created a portal, um, for people to request an absentee ballot online, which I think is great. Um, because the current process before that was very, very tedious and annoying and had multiple steps. So like, that's one thing. The other thing that he has just introduced that I, I really like, and again, don't know how well it works yet because it's new, but uh, they contracted with a company to do ballot tracking uh, because how it works in Georgia uh, previously was there is a web portal for like all your voter registration questions um, called uh, MVP voter, your MVP voter page. And um, on that, you can see your absentee ballot status. So you could see if like you had successfully requested it. You could see if they had mailed it to you yet. And once you mailed it back, you could see if they received it and if they accepted it. And But the, the problem with that was is you had to do everything yourself. You had to log onto the website, look at it, think about it, all that kind of stuff. The, the great thing that, about this ballot tracker website that they have put together is that it actually will tell you when your absentee ballot has been mailed to you and it would tell you when the county registrar uh, gets it and if they accept it or not. And the best part, of course, is it tells you if they did not accept it. So it give you, uh, you know, notice that like, oh, you need to correct your absentee ballot. So this is a good website. We should uh, post it in the show notes and I encourage people to sign up for it. I did. So I will hopefully be able to report next week uh, if my ballot was accepted and uh, how I got notified for uh, for that because um, I sent it in pretty late last week because uh, I just got it, I think, on Thursday. Um, so they probably haven't gotten it and processed it yet, but they will soon, hopefully. So I think that's great. And I, I want to talk about the last thing I'll talk about here is the like real policy consequences uh, of this, which is right now if you go to georgiavotes.com and see just how many people have register, have requested absentee ballots, it is 1,314,257, which is a big number. What makes that number even bigger is at this time in the 2016 election, that number was 111,003 voters, which that is a 1,084% higher. Um, and to, to give you like an idea of just like how much more people that means is that to get to a number, like to get to that number basically in the 2016 cycle, it took until October 23rd. So we are basically a month ahead of time on how many people are like working on voting and have done like taking a step to actually get their ballot in versus last time. So, and that's including like in-person people from the last, you know, people voting in person. So I think that is amazing. And here's, here's the even greater thing that I think is even more exciting is that um, the people whose votes have already been accepted is 242% higher which um, means that like we're basically ahead of time all the way to like October 6th is when last cycle that was that high. And the, the last thing about that that I want to hit on just because I think this is the, the, the absolute most exciting thing of all. And I, I just love votes and numbers, so I get excited about all of it. But um, for the accepted votes, because I think that is you know, where it really, really matters, is 21.5% of those people did not vote at all in 2016. So, like, that's a lot of new voters, and the percentage of people who've requested ballots is very, very similar. Um, that number is 27.3% of people who've requested a ballot did not even vote in 2016 at all. And so that is, I think, great for Georgia, great for democracy, and, you know, Raffensperger deserves some credit because he has done some things that have helped that process. Did you read the Atlantic article, Barton Gelman, uh, wrote this very long article laying out this doomsday scenario where President Trump might try to contest the election 
largely based on a theory that a lot of the mail-in balloting is fraudulent. This is obviously, as we've talked about before, there there's basically no evidence of widespread voter fraud in mail-in balloting. Um, but this article basically laid out a series of uh, a series well, of maneuvers that could be done that that. Well, I was going to ask Kyle: Are you asking? Is this some like Machiavellian elaborate scheme by Raffensperger to make a bunch of Democrats request absentee ballots and then throw them out? No, I wasn't even going to go there. I was actually saying that like this article gave some people nightmares. I think other people's initial response was to dismiss it out of hand as like, this is like a crazy conspiracy theory that's not going to happen. And even talking about it is, uh, you know, let you gives oxygen to this idea that the president may have some sort of rationale to, to try to contest this election based on accusations of fraud. I think the thing though, that ties into these tools that you're talking about, both the, the counting of absentee ballots as they come in that's being done on Georgia votes and the tracking methods uh, that are available on this website from the Secretary of State's office. I think it's too soon to speak about it in a legal context, but I think it creates more certainty for people about they voted by mail, their mail ballot was accepted, they can see that it was accepted on a website that purports to show them that, if we're going to have a conversation, long long shot opportunity here, maybe this won't matter, but if we're going to have a conversation in November and December where the president tries to say that he should get to stay in office because all this mail-in balloting was fraudulent, for all these people that voted by mail, checked their website, found that, that their ballot got accepted, that message is going to fall on deaf ears for a lot of people. I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't I know mean, what my question was, but I just like, yeah. I thought of that article as you're describing these tools that are out there that sort of make mail-in balloting real and not this boogeyman that Trump can talk about on Twitter. And like, does that have any impact? Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, with the lack of question there, I would just continue to, uh, you know, go, go, um, on my my train of consciousness and and you know plow forward and the thing the thing i think about with that is like is it possible that trump's going to try to do these things yes but i i think people overestimate unless this is a like florida 2000 scenario where we're talking like hundreds of votes it's just not going to be very successful because there are a lot of people like the the one I think of the most in this situation is Frank LaRose, who is the Republican Secretary of State of Ohio. Like absentee ballots are would be very very hard to fake in mass. Like you, you know the only instance that I can think of it in the modern era is that political consultant in North Carolina who would hire people to physically con- collect ballots one by one. And, and, you know, get people to vote for the candidate he was working for. Like, that's a lot of work and it's very hard to do. And as this story existing highlights, like, he got caught. And so, like, for me, like, on my ballot, like, there was some barcodes. There's all these numbers that, like, I don't see how you fake it. Like, if it's an inside job, like, maybe somebody could. But there's so many people watching you. I don't know how you could do it. Because there's just so much verification that has to happen, and I, it, it would just be it would be so incredibly difficult because you have to fake these ballots, like fake all these barcodes, and it just it would be very hard. I don't know how you do it with mail ballots. Um, and I mean, I think that is why there are so few cases ever reported of voter fraud. Is that it's just like the we've been doing this for a long time. Like people have been doing mail ballots for a very, very long time and people want the vote to count and not be faked. And I do too. And I just don't think like it's going to happen and it's going to like, there's going to be any proof of it whatsoever. Like the proof of it will be Donald Trump says it happened. And unfortunately for a lot of people that is enough, but for any court, I would hope that will be, you know, just laughed on its face of just like, what is your evidence? And it's like, my evidence is I said it happened. Um, and that just, that just doesn't hold up in court usually. Um, so yeah, I, it would be incredibly difficult. Well, and I think if you were, if this was some part of some master plan by Republican officials across the country, you probably wouldn't 
create a website that allows individual people to confirm that their ballot has been received and then try to mount a PR campaign that subverts American democracy <laughs> by yeah, saying I, I, that like your mail-in ballot is fraudulent and never got accepted. Like I can look on the website and it tells me it's accepted. Like, right. And, and, and the other, the other thing, cause I, I didn't tie this back to Frank LaRose in the way I meant to, it's just like, he, he's been actively campaigning. It's like, nope, this is not going to be a problem in Ohio. We have really great protections and we have built this system for years and people like it and trust it. So yeah, that's not going to be a problem. And so it's just like the fact that like, really the only person who consistently pushes this message unwaveringly is Donald Trump and pretty much everyone around him even mitch mcconnell who is probably the most cynical human being who's ever lived like even he is like Marilyn Bros are probably gonna be okay like yeah like i just i just don't see this being a thing i mean you know i i, I definitely think they're gonna try and i i mean you know but that's yeah they're gonna try but i just don't think they will be successful all right. Well, we have rambled on uh, for a while here. This was fun. Um, we're going to continue to do these these looser shows on Sundays. Um, you're also going to hear from us later this week uh, reacting to Tuesday's first presidential debate between President Trump and Joe Biden. Um, you'll hear that by the end of the week. Uh, got a lot of stuff coming uh, for you, so stay tuned, and we'll talk to you again soon. Goodbye. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.